every Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning. I hope you had a great weekend. This is Peter Lewis welcoming you to my podcast, Money Talk, for Monday the 3rd of April. And this podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore. In the business headlines today, activity in China's non-manufacturing sectors grew at its fastest rate in more than 12 years in March. The National Bureau of Statistics non-manufacturing PMI reached 58.2. That's its highest reading since May 2011. However, activity in the mainland's manufacturing sector expanded at a slower pace last month. Hong Kong's retail sales surged over 31% in value terms year-on-year in February as the number of visitors to the city rebounded sharply. It was the biggest rise in 13 years as economic sentiment improved. Tourist arrivals in Hong Kong in February soared nearly 557 times from a year earlier to 1.46 million, exceeding 1 million for the first time in three years. Beijing on Friday escalated the semiconductor dispute between the US and China after the mainland's internet regulator launched a review into sales by US memory chip giant Micron Technology to safeguard national security. And Japan is planning to impose export controls on 23 types of equipment used in chip manufacturing, the government said on Friday. The restrictions, which will come into effect in July, will require Japanese companies that feature heavily in the global semiconductor supply chain to seek export permission for all regions. Although the Ministry of Economy, Trade and Industry didn't explicitly mention China in its briefing, China's foreign ministry said that Japan was harming themselves and harming others with the new planned export controls. On today's programme, I'm joined by Alex Wong, Director at Alex KY Wong Asset Management, and Iris Pang, Chief Greater China Economist at ING Wholesale Banking. And I'll also talk with Yan M. Wu, the Chairman and CEO of Surfing Group in Singapore. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. U.S. stocks, treasury bonds, gold and Bitcoin all soared in the first quarter of 2023 while the U.S. dollar dropped. On Wall Street, U.S. stocks notched gains for the day, the week, the month and the quarter. The S&P 500 added 1.4% Friday to close at 4,109, taking it above its pre-Silicon Valley bank levels. The Dow surged to its best week since November and gained 415 points Friday, or 1.3%, closing at 33,274. The Nasdaq Composite advanced 1.7% to end at 12,222. The S&P 500 rose 7% in the first quarter. However, it was an extremely narrow rally with just eight stocks accounting for all of the S&P 500's year-to-date return. The Nasdaq Composite soared 16.8% in its best quarterly performance since the second quarter of 2020, and before that, going back to the first quarter of 2012. The mega-cap tech stocks saw their market capitalization soar, with Apple back above uh, 2.5 trillion US dollars. Microsoft was worth more than two trillion, and Amazon rose back above one trillion US dollars in market capitalization. Banks were the big laggards in the first quarter, seeing over 450 billion US dollars of inflows into money market funds and over 300 billion US dollars in deposit outflows from US domestic banks. The KBW Regional Banking Index was down almost 19% over the quarter, ending close to its lows. In Asia, Taiwan was the region's best-performing market, with the TIEX index booking a 12.2% gain in the first quarter. South Korea's Cosby is the second best performer in the region so far this year, adding 10.8%. 
Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index rose for the third consecutive week, adding almost 6% over that period and increasing the total market cap for stocks uh, listed in Hong Kong by about 166 billion US dollars. On Friday, the Hang Seng added 91 points or half a percent to close at 20,400. For the month of March, it gained 3.1% and was up the same amount for the quarter. The tech index climbed 0.8% Friday and is up 4.2% for 2023 so far. And on the mainland, the Shanghai Composite Index rose 0.4% to 3,273 for a quarterly gain of almost 6%. And we're watching the oil markets this morning after OPEC said yesterday it would slash oil production by more than 1 1 million barrels per day. Brent crude oil futures are up almost 7% in early trading in Asia. And you can get all the latest market movements on my daily blog, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. And let's welcome our guests. We have this morning Alex Wong, who is director at Alex KY Wong Asset Management. Good morning to you, Alex. Good morning, Peter. And also joining us, Iris Pang, who is chief greater China economist at ING Wholesale Banking. Very good morning to you, Iris, as well. Morning, Peter. Uh, let's start with these China PMI uh, numbers. Activity in China's non-manufacturing sector grew at its fastest rate in more than 12 years. The National Bureau of Statistics uh, non-manufacturing PMI reached 58.2. That's its highest reading since May 2011. And it also marked the third straight month of expansion in the service sector, with new orders rising for the third consecutive month and at a faster rate. However, foreign sales and employment declined after rising in the prior month. And on inflation, input costs rose the least in three months, while output costs also declined. In the manufacturing sector, that expanded at a slower pace. The official manufacturing PMI fell to 51.9 from February's near 11-year high of 52.6%. Alex, what's it telling us um, about the mainland economy? I think, uh, first of all, uh, this is due to the uh, covid uh, reopening. So uh, that's why we are seeing a strong uh, momentum in the uh, ser- uh, services sectors. But uh, the um, manufacturing sector actually has been affected by COVID. I think uh, many foreign companies actually had uh, relocated part of their manufacturing processes uh, to, out- to to outside China. So that's why we are seeing uh, a weak momentum of rebound over there. And also um, we are seeing um, the impact uh, of um, this, um, the, 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 the slowing demand, I think, uh, in the overseas market as well. Mm, that, w- that was reflected very much so, wasn't it? Do you think um, that could deepen the manufacturing slide as, as global growth slows? Oh, I think so. I think uh, because we have the uh, banking issues uh, recently, and very likely we would see uh, banks uh, slow down their, 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 their loans uh, in the coming futures. So that's why I think uh, we will we'll probably see a contraction in the overseas market. So that, I think, uh, would also be uh, con- have a continued um, effect uh, on China. Iris, what are you reading into this data? So I, I'm thinking that um, the uh, non-manufacturing PMI, because it includes construction, so mm. it means that the um, real estate, um, residential real estate especially, is recovering. So of course, it is not recovering to a state that we are um, before the the real estate crisis in China. Mm. Um, but anyway, it is a good sign. 
On the other hand, um, the manufacturing PMI is just as expected. It's not that good. Um, even though new export orders was barely about 50 at 50.4, I still believe that the export um, demand is weakening. And this weakness showed in employment, output prices and existing orders. And I wanted to ask you about that because that, that employment, unemployment number still remains quite high, doesn't it? And, and employment in both manufacturing and, um, and non-manufacturing looks set to maybe have contracted um, this month. How much is that sort of um, casting a shadow over the economic recovery? Um, good question. Um, the, actually, this is a, a very tough question. Um, if we look back, on the employment data in man, in manufacturing and non-manufacturing PMI, it doesn't have a it didn't have a very good um, moment for years, mm-hmm. and it seems that the recovery is not as speedy as the markets has expected, and therefore we still have uh, um, below fifty employment sub-indices and and it shows that there are several factors in it. The first is the export sector that is not very good as I have mentioned. The other one is that um, real estate although construction has recovered a little bit, it doesn't mean a full recovery and for non-manufacturing the whole service sector seems to be very um, volatile um, and um, depending on seasonal factors like long holidays. Alex, I'm, I'm wondering that there's been a lot of talk about um, the economic rebound because of the end of all the zero COVID restrictions. But have we now seen the main boost from that? Have the, the main benefits now already passed us? And I'm wondering if going forward, um, it may be that the, these numbers aren't going to look so good. Yeah, I think so. I think uh, the normalization process actually would t- not take too long. So uh, we are probably uh, seeing the uh, positive impacts uh, reflected in the economy and the markets already. So um, from now on, probably we would see the real pictures of China. So uh, probably uh, we would still see weak uh, manufacturing sector performance. And uh, the service sectors probably also may not have too much momentum going forward because, uh, as you said, unemployment remains mad. So I think uh, the local demands probably may not be uh, able to last um, very long. The, the government set a target of around 5% GDP growth. Do, do you think um, they're going to make that, or is it too conservative, maybe? I think uh, they put a conservative target, and that's why uh, they, they could, uh, that, that, I think that, that makes them easier to achieve. And I think uh, they will achieve, because uh, they have quite many tools, so probably we may see easier monetary policy despite uh, the overseas market turmoil. What do you think, Iris? Do you think we've seen the main benefits now uh, behind us in the rearview mirror from the from the reopening and the abandoning of um, all those zero COVID restric- restrictions? Um, I visited um, Beijing, Shanghai, and uh, Guangdong province. It um, it looks like that the recovery is actually very strong um, in the domestic markets, not the export market, domestic markets, and. Um, over the three years, of course, um, China uh, experienced COVID. It seems to me that comparing to Hong Kong, the impact of COVID in the, these key cities are not that damaging as compared to Hong Kong. 
and therefore I think that their recovery could be more stable. I don't expect a sharp recovery in Hong Kong or in, in mainland China key cities. But gradual recovery seems to be very likely. And, and there's one thing that I'm a bit curious about. The People's Bank of China has injected quite a large amount of liquidity um, into the market from the, the 21st to the 29th of March. They added more than uh, 850 billion renminbi, that's about 124 billion US dollars of net liquidity into the financial system. What, what should we read into that? Is, is it significant or not? This is significant. And um, behind that, I think it is high loan growth. And um, we already saw the loan growth in January and February. They, they are a lot stronger than previous, the, the, from last year, around 20 to 30% stronger. And I expect that this will be the same for March. So it means that um, China needs more liquidity. Otherwise, interest rates will rise sharply, especially uh, near the end of the quarter. And so this is more a seasonal operation for the end of the quarter and also for a strong loan demand in general in 2023. And it also acts as a cushion for um, uh, also very unlikely um, global uh, financial market turmoil going into China. Alex, what, what do you think? Do you think the People's Bank of China is going to be more accommodative in terms of its monetary policy, or has it gone as far as it can go now? Yeah, I think uh, they would be more com- accommodative. I think uh, they would probably uh, try to be uh, as loose as possible because uh, we are talking about a, a, a higher and uh, persistent uh, unemployment and scenario in China. So that's why I think uh, they will tend to tackle that. So probably we will continue to see them to um, to be quite uh, generous in injecting uh, liquidity into the system. Iris, can I switch to Hong Kong and just ask you about that retail sales data we had on Friday? Retail sales surged 31.3% in value terms year on year in February. That's the biggest rise in 13 years. Tourist arrivals in Hong Kong in February soared nearly 557 times from a year earlier to 1.46 million. That's exceeding 1 million now for the first time in three years. What is this telling you? Are, Are we back on track? We are actually, you're right, we are actually back on track, but um, back on track really means that we are recovering, not really going, jumping to the points of the um, of, of 2018. So um, what I believe is that there will be more and more um, visitors coming to Hong Kong, um, including mainland visitors and also other uh other visitors from other locations, but um, we have to watch out that it is it is not just the number of visitors that we concern. We are also looking at the 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 spending here, and uh, what we have found is that uh, most of the spending is still um, not as as um, as good as the, for example, in twenty eighteen. Hmm. So um, there is still room for improvement. I mean, we have to bear in mind, I suppose, that even though there was this jump in visitor numbers in February, it's still less than the third of the monthly level we were seeing in 2018. Yeah. 
Alex, um, how much of it was due, do you think, to, to this increase in visitor numbers? Or, or was it more that maybe um, the, the base effect? I mean, we're comparing it to a year ago, which was pretty dire, wasn't it, in terms of visitors? Yeah, of course, the base effect uh, is, uh, you know, is very high in this case. But I think the momentum is, is OK. Um, and, and we will have uh, many programs that are sponsored by the government and the allies. So we are probably uh, to see the number going to be strong in the coming months as well. But uh, the retail outlets are really suffering at the moment, aren't they? Because they've been hit by three years of, of border closures. Now, although the border is open again and visitors are coming, they've now got this big increase in operating costs, including uh, rent, electricity, wages because of the interest rate rises. And there's a, a talent shortage as well. It's not easy for them, is it? Yeah, I think the, the, the biggest challenge will be on the wages. Uh, right now, um, many, many... Industries actually lack uh, labors right now. Uh, I think uh, the 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 many people left Hong Kong. Uh, that is also uh, have an impact on the wages as well. So this is the real challenge because um, you you have to pay really high to get uh, people to work for you right now in mm-hmm. Hong Kong. Mm. Iris, what what do you make of the campaigns that are coming up? We're going to get $3,000 of consumption vouchers on April the 16th, although that does compare with $5,000 in the installments a year ago. We've also got this Hello Hong Kong campaign, which is kicked off. How much is that going forward um, going to to boost um, retail sales? Um, That helps, but um, right now that helps more on the daily um, consumption rather than boosting an extra consumption. For Hello Hong Kong, I think that is the, the key campaign that boosts extra consumption for Hong Kong. Um, but I, I think that um, it can be better if we don't have um, uh, Hello Hong Kong for outbound consumption. Hmm. Um, that's actually net off the, the impact of um, spending in Hong Kong. Yeah, because people are going to travel over Easter, aren't they, and spend overseas, not here. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's what I'm not looking for uh, in, in the government campaign. Yes, yeah. Alex, can I turn to the US? We had that important inflation data, the core personal consumption expenditures price index, which is the Fed's favorite gauge of inflation. So one of the most important data points in the month. Um, It increased 0.3% on the month. That was below um, economists' estimates and also below the half a percent increase in January. On a yearly basis, core PCE increased 4.6%. What do you make of that? And and also, what do you think it means for the Fed? I think... uh First of all, I think the Fed probably would, uh, would would not have much room for increase rate right now because of the banking uh, banking issues in in the U.S. So very likely we will see the banks uh, to slow down their earn uh, their, their, their their lending. So that's that's why I think uh, the money velocity actually would get slower in the U.S. and that would put some um, breaks uh, on the inflation uh, level. Mm. Uh, but uh, the current rebound in oil actually would complicate um, the issue a little bit because we are seeing a slowdown on demand side. But um, the oil uh, rise actually would probably put some pressures on the supply side. So um, the supply, the, the inflation on the supply side actually may be a problem right now. And that would put some um, 
complexity in the in the in the markets uh, uh, for quite some time. I think I think we need to see the impact of this uh, oil reductions uh, very closely because uh, this uh, would change uh, the inflation expectations a little bit. Mm. Oil, oil futures here in Asia, Brent's crude oil futures are up almost eight percent um, in in early Asian trading. It's not really what we want to see, is it, at this time? Yeah, yeah, right. Because uh, from the demand side, probably we'll see slowdown in demands because of, as I've said, um, the money velocity would, would be slower because of uh, the banking crisis. So um, this uh, supply side issue actually would put uh, some pressure. So this is what we don't want to see. I Iris, what are your, your thoughts? It, it seems to show that inflation is going in a downward direction, but it all seems to be rather too slow to me. But, but what do you think? I think there are several factors here. The first thing is that um, um, the energy prices uh, have, have, a, have a key role here. So overnight, we have OPEC Plus saying that they are going to cut output. The other thing is that um, inflation is more a year-on-year basis um, indicator. So it has a large... Um, base effects in place. So we should see a deeper dive of inflation in the coming months because of the high base effects last year. So mm. I am not that worried about um, US or Europe inflation not going down. Is the, the other thing that I will be really um, looking at is how energy prices uh, is going to be in play because of the OPEC plus cut. And therefore, I will look at more likely um, the monthly change of the inflation number rather than just um, the year-on-year number because it is reported as year-on-year. What do you think the Fed um, is going to do? If you look at the Fed fund futures markets, they're indicating a 50-50 chance of another 25 basis points rate hike in May and then a pause. But the markets are then predicting 50 basis points of rate cuts by the end of the year. Do you see that as happening? Yes, we actually at ING see uh, 75 basis point cuts in the fourth quarter. And we believe that the long high inflation has already weakened the economy a lot. And therefore, there are a lot of leakages in the economy that we have to pay attention to and the first um, indicator for now is inflation but we have to keep in mind that it has a dual mandate of in keeping inflation and employment stable and now um, it is going to change from inflation to employment. If you believe in 75 basis points of, of rate cuts in the final quarter I presume that means you must also be predicting a recession in the US. Yes you're right. Okay. Um, Let's turn our um, attention to the trade tensions. Beijing on Friday escalated the semiconductor dispute between the US and China after the mainland's internet regulator launched a review into sales by US memory chip giant Micron Technology to safeguard national security. The office, uh, the Cybersecurity Review Office, which works under the Cyberspace Administration of China, said on Friday that the probe, which is the first ever into a foreign company by that office, has been launched to safeguard key information infrastructure, supply chain security and to prevent cyberspace security risks due to problematic products. Alex, what what do you make of this? It's hard to imagine Micron, which has been sending its chips all over the world for, for a long time now, has some sort of problem with its products. But what do you make of this? Why are they doing this? 
Yeah, I think uh, this is uh, this is hard to imagine, as you said. So um, I think that they are doing this uh, to just uh, to show some gestures. And and right now, chips have become more important because of the development of AI. So I think uh, they would be facing more sanctions from the outside world, and probably they would want to show the muscles to to trying to to show the the economic impacts on several um, companies, and that's. That that probably will make them uh, to do some more business uh, with them. So I think um, they're facing the muscles uh, to 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 try to show the impacts. Uh, if they are doing more sanctions to China, then probably they they would also be impacted as well. So it's a warning signal to countries like Japan and South Korea that if they join in with the U.S.'s campaign on semiconductor exports and equipment to to China, there could be repercussions. Yeah, right. Uh, and I think uh, China probably also uh, would would. Develop their own technologies uh, as fast as possible. So um, they probably um, are trying to show the, the 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 impact and and also in the on the other hand they will try to secure their own supplier as soon as possible. Iris, what do you make of this escalation? Really, isn't it in the in the semiconductor war almost you could call it? Yeah. So um, I I actually think that as a country, um, China has to do this. And um, it is it actually picks the the right candidate uh, on doing this, and it actually sends a very big warning signals not just to um, other Asian um, semiconductor manufacturer, including Taiwan, but also to U.S. Um, meaning that they shouldn't escalate this further um, with more export controls. Um, on semiconductors going into China, it shouldn't um, uh, liaise with other economies to do the same on China. But so it- I think that this this gesture is actually um, playing a, a very, on a country perspective, it is a, a, a very good move. But how does it fit in last week with with Premier Li at the Bell Forum, who was basically saying China wanted to attract foreign companies, including U.S. companies. It was open to foreign investment. Um, It wanted to promote private businesses and private enterprises. This doesn't really fit in with that, does it? I think the two issues are quite separate. Um, For for the overnight um, China uh, uh, examination on the U.S. semiconductor company. It is actually a different topic, mm. and for general FDI attraction, I don't think that China has um, done uh, any any restrictions on that, and therefore I think they we should separate the two. And I also uh, understand that there are um, foreign companies still expanding investments in China. Alex, we, we had also the news that Japan's going to impose export controls on 23 types of equipment used in chip manufacturing, and that follows similar moves by the US and the Netherlands. It seems the US, though, is succeeding in its campaign, isn't it, to get key allies to, uh, to join it? Yeah, I think the uh, U.S. will try its uh, best effort to uh, try to uh, restrain the development of uh, uh, chips industry in China because uh, right now the, uh, right now we are talking about the AI development and which is uh, much faster than expected. So I think uh, the backbone in that uh, would be on chips. So that's why China, U.S. would try its best uh, to 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 restrain the growth of uh, um, the chip industry in China. So that's why they are put they're trying to secure more support from their allies. 
I just where, where does this all end? It, it's not good for China. It's not good for the US. It's not good for global supply chains, is it? Yeah, it, it will be a, a very different supply chain of semiconductors and semiconductors equipments and also technology. So um, the whole value chain will change. And therefore, um, we should expect that China will push itself to, to a, a very stretched um, situation to invent by itself on semiconductor um, technology. And it means that there will be divergence on um, supply chains, at least two supply chains. And I suppose we have to take that into account in terms of the economic performance and also the performance of individual companies. We looked at and um, we had those Huawei results on, on Thursday, on Friday, showing sales there plunged almost two thirds because of this um, restriction on them getting able to get crucial chips for their products. So it is having an impact, isn't it? Yes. So um, it wouldn't just impact companies. It also impacts on uh, country level. And therefore, um, on a macro basis, um, China has to do this stretching on, on uh, semiconductor chips technology and other technologies so that it won't be leaving behind. Alex, let me ask you about the market performance in, in the first quarter. Um, if, you, if you look at where we are mm-hmm. between the beginning of the year and the end of the year, you would have thought nothing's happened in between. And there yep. certainly hasn't been a banking crisis. But I suppose the big standout has been growth stocks, just how mm-hmm. much they have dominated the first quarter, particularly um, the, the big um, tech companies. And as I mentioned earlier, um, uh, earlier in the uh, in the in the report, um, if you look at uh, the S and P five hundred, basically the, the the outperformance this year has been dominated by just um, eight companies. Mm. Um, those eight companies, if you're interested in them, are Meta, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Alphabet, Microsoft, Nvidia, and Tesla. They're up four point six percent. The other four hundred and ninety two stocks collectively are down one percent for the year. These types of narrow rallies are, are rarely sustainable, are they? Yeah, of course. Uh, I think that there are two reasons. First of all, um, that is uh, the uh, um, banking crisis. So uh, we are seeing people wield um, people wield Apple or um, Microsoft as the uh, latest uh, safe haven buying uh, targets hmm. because uh, they are stronger than the U.S. government in terms of balance sheet and probably um, they, and, also, and also the cash flow are strong. So that's why they are seeing them as a treasury. So we are de- seeing a safe haven buying of those megatech companies. Another reason is uh, the development of AI. So we have the Czech GDP um, getting really hot uh, in the um, latter part of uh, last quarter. So that is uh, boosting the uh, whole semiconductor industries and also the interest of gold stock. So uh, we are having a, a new fresh growth topics in the market. And also the banking crisis makes uh, several tech companies as a safe haven. So that's why we are seeing this kind of polarization in the market. And uh, if we are seeing the... Um, renewed worry on the supply side of the inflation, then probably we may see a reversal uh, on the tax as uh, uh, coming soon because uh, that would be impacted by the change in industry expectations a little bit. So I think uh, we are probably may not we probably may not see a sustainable strength uh, in 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 this narrow part of the market. And it's been reflected in what assets have done overall. It's been very much a risk-on type of um, quarter, hasn't it? Treasury bonds, gold, Bitcoin, all outperformers. 
Yeah, yeah. So uh, right now uh, we are seeing some stabilization in the banking crisis in the in the U.S. So people probably expect uh, 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 things are going back to normal, but uh, the the impact actually would be more persistent. As I've said, uh, we will probably will see slower money velocity in the U.S. So that means uh, we are probably uh, going towards an, a recession phase, and then. Um, we are likely to see the oil prices to remain a little bit firm, so we probably may have some renewed worry of stagflation. So that is uh, which is uh, uh, the another worry of the market right now. Iris, this sounds like the old QE trade all over again, doesn't it? As the Fed pumps liquidity into the market through all its emergency lending windows, and um, you know they've added about uh, expanded their balance sheet by about three hundred billion dollars. That seems to be what's doing it, isn't it? Yeah, but they, I think the, um, the the Fed doesn't have any choice at all at this moment unless the situation really, really comes to an end. But who knows that when will it come to an end? So the Fed is now playing safe to mm. continue this kind of um, support to the market so that it can calm down, calm down the worries. And it hopefully helps to speed up to, to the end of this kind of um, hiccups. Okay, well, thank you both very much for your thoughts. Have a happy Qingming Festival and Easter holiday, which is all coming up uh, this week. You heard there Iris Pang, who is Chief Greater China Economist at ING Wholesale Banking, and Alex Wong, who is Director at Alex KY Wong Asset Management. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. I'm joined now by Yanan Wu, who is chairman and CEO of Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore. Very good morning to you, Yanan. Good morning, Peter. Congratulations for your podcast. Thank you very much. Now, look, since we last spoke, um, you've started a new venture as well, or it's been going for a little while, but you're, you're CEO and chairman of um, Surfing Group, which is, which is headquartered in Singapore, but I, I think has offices in a number of places around the world. Just give me a one, two-minute explanation of, of Surfing Group, what, what you do. Yes, Peter, I'm happy to uh, introduce uh, Surfing. Uh, we, uh, uh, a group, uh, is striving for the becoming digital banking empowerment in emerging markets. Uh, since it was established in 2017 uh, in Singapore, and we have uh, covered 10 countries so far across three continents, including countries like uh, Indonesia, Philippines, Vietnam, Mexico, you know, Kenya, and like Area in Africa, so really uh, uh, across uh, three continents, uh, we have also serviced three thirty million u- users uh, for providing, you know, credit scores and uh, uh, online uh, consumer finance for those underbanked, unbanked uh, uh, population, uh, which have uh, uh, penetrated almost two percent of, uh, you know, eight between age. Uh, 16 to 64, uh, that population across 10 countries. So we're really uh, proud that uh, we can, uh, you know, provide digital financial service and financial inclusion for those uh, uh, consumers and uh, issue credit cards, as well as uh, providing wealth management and online trading for middle-class, white-collar young family. And and I presume India and China are, are your two biggest markets? Yeah, uh, the Indonesia, Vietnam, uh, Mexico, and Nigeria, all big markets. You know, they uh, 
uh, age group, you know, demographically as uh, every age around uh, 25 to 28. So it's really young, dynamic, uh, uh, you know, growing consumers in those uh, emerging markets and uh, imagine you know these young people become uh, the largest consumer market in the next five to ten years so this uh, i believe the vision is to uh, you know co-partner with them and then grow with them so that they become the benefit from the financial inclusion in the long term Okay, and I should mention for full disclosure purposes that uh, Surfid and and Yanan have agreed to sponsor this podcast and uh, to help make it available to their customers in those those emerging markets. So thank you very much for that, uh, Yanan. Let me ask you about... uh, some of the economic data that came out of China um, on, on Friday. We had those PMI numbers, didn't we, which showed um, non, non-manufacturing growing at its fastest rate in more than 12 years, although uh, manufacturing did expand at a slower pace. What's it telling us about the mainland economy? Yes, uh, so you just uh, mentioned that uh, the service, uh, the non-manufacturer part is really, uh, uh, you know, 12 years high. And uh, the uh, manufacturing in March, uh, although it's uh, 0.7% uh, lower than February uh, PMI, manufacturing PMI, but consider, you know, February um, uh, uh, manufacturing PMI was the highest in 10 years, and March PMI was the second uh, the highest among the last 10 years. So it's both manufacturing and non-manufacturing obviously are still in the expansion mode. So I, I think that uh, message uh, still tells that the Chinese economy, you know, after re- reopening to the world after, you know, after the COVID policy relaxed at, at the end of last year. So really catching, catching back the expansion mode. Uh, however, if you look at the, the, the numbers in, uh, among the P- manufacturing PMIs, the production uh, order index uh, and the new order index and also the delivery uh, supply uh, index all above the expansion. So this means uh, uh, the production and new orders still grows. However, the the raw materials uh, stocking index is below the expansion point. So overall, the manufacturing side is still at a destocking mode. So that, uh, I think, uh, has to see in the next few months, see the destocking still continues and uh, for the service side of course uh the if you look at the uh, airlines you know and also hotels and uh, road uh, transportation this all grow to a very high level uh after the covid relaxation how how much do you think the the global economy the slowdown in uh, in global manufacturing and the global economy is, is weighing on china's economy yeah, I think there's really the consumption. Uh, if you look at the export numbers, uh, which is not very, uh, uh, you know, as uh, pleasant as last year. So the uh, the West, the demand from the global market is uh, slows down. You know, it's led by the U.S. Uh, because the rate hiking uh, affecting the uh, consumption side. And domestically, uh, consumption still have to catch up. Uh, although March was seeing a... Uh, uh, rebound from the bottom, but whether it can continue, uh, we still have to see. So the consumption, the the demand from both uh, globally uh, overseas market and also domestically have to be uh, remained tested for the next uh, few months. 
Now, China um, has launched a review into U.S. chip manufacturer Micron, which is the largest U.S. manufacturer of semiconductors on, on national security grounds. It seems that this semiconductor war that's going on between the, the U.S. and China um, is being escalated another level. How serious is this? Yeah, I think that's an interesting development. You know, China uh, at least is in the surveillance uh, uh, based on the internet securities on Micron, uh, which is the top uh, number three in the uh, RAM industry, uh, memory industry globally. I know in 2021, the Micron, the DRAM, NAND, and NOR, the global market share has been, you know, was respectively 23%, 11%, and 7%, especially on the auto DRAM uh, market share, uh, Micron occupied about 45%. So, uh, so it's really a significant, uh, you know, uh, impact on Micron's uh, business in China. Mm. Uh, if you look at the domestic side, probably that helps the domestic substitute for China, for DRAM, especially on the consumption electronic side. So I would say probably that support the local, uh, national, uh, the DRAM and also other memory uh, micro uh, uh, you know, chips in the industry. Is it, is However, it, the Japan restrict. Yeah, go ahead. Isn't China shooting itself in the foot here because it's struggling to get um, semiconductors for for its company's products? We saw that with Huawei, uh, didn't we? At the end of last week, which reported its sales have dropped two thirds. It, it's finding it hard to get these kind of chips, which which Micron itself makes, and, it, and it's hard to imagine that there's actually anything wrong with Micron's products. So it all seems very political. Well, I was, you know, from the surface, it does show uh, it's a retaliation, you know, the, about the, you know, the global ban on Huawei and the other Chinese, uh, you know, uh, electronic industry. Mm. Uh, so, and also the 5G network. Uh, so I would say it's a, it's a country re- retaliation uh, from China's side. Uh, but the, 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 I think that right now the Japan uh, restriction is very serious because that's lined up with U.S. Uh, Restriction and uh, on the especially on the 14 nanometer, you know, uh, chips and below. Uh, so, so that would affect China's uh, chip industry uh, demand on more advanced and more, uh, you know, uh, very uh, intelligent uh, uh, computing power in the chip industry, which is used heavily, you know, for the chips uh, which uh, lower them you know, seven nanometer or even lower. So mm. so that's a part uh, China's still hard to find this domestic substitute yet. And, and these so, um, Japanese so. export controls on, on 23 types of equipment used in chip manufacturing, it seems to expand... Uh, the alliance that uh, first the U.S., then the Netherlands joined them. Now Japan is joining them. Um, yeah. you, you think this is going to have a serious impact on China? Yeah, you know, uh, all these countries you just mentioned, uh, you know, including uh, you know South Korea uh, as well. Uh, so that uh, really affect uh, uh, the supply for uh, the, the advanced chip uh, usage. And so the you know, that affect the Huawei's uh, 5G phone, you know, uh, for now. Hmm. And also uh, for other, you know, like ChatGPT, uh, this uh, AI industry that's heavily used the computing power on 
GPU and other, you know, even more advanced uh, chips. So, so I think that uh, part is a, is heavily uh, impacted. And consumer electronics like uh, auto and uh, you know the the home uh, usage uh, electronics. So that part I think is not heavily relying upon the you know chips with. Uh, Smaller than uh, fourteen nanometer, so so the car electron consumer electronics is not uh, ha- uh, heavily affected by these restrictions. Yeah, so thank- that's really affected the computing power. Yeah, yeah, and thank you very much for joining me this morning. That's Yanan Wu, who's chairman and CEO of Surfing Group, which is headquartered down in Singapore. Thank you, Peter. And tomorrow's program will be the final one for this week as we prepare to celebrate the Qingming Festival and then Easter. Here in Hong Kong on the show, I'll be joined by Mark Michelson, Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia, Pete Sweeney, who is financial columnist at Reuters, and our US economics correspondent, writer and broadcaster, Barry Wood. Have a great day. Money Talk.